If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Brand new music from the Rolling Stones. I thought they were dead. This is absolutely incredible. Not only is it a great song called Angry, these guys guys are, what are they, 80? And they're still banging them out. And uh, I I believe uh, the new studio album, it's called Hackney Diamonds. It's out October 20th. And, of course, the single just released, the first uh, first single, rather, Rolling Stones Angry. The official video is out there. You can find it on social media. And it's great. Like, you know, it's the same old Stones, you know, in love. It's got a, a, you know, a great beat. It's easy to dance to. It's the same old, same old. But they sound great. And uh, kudos to them. At 105 or whatever it is that they are, I think this is their 26th studio album. I'm not sure. I don't think we know. It's so far back. We don't even know that information. Uh, But anyway, uh, officially uh, announced today that uh, the new album out October 20th, not announced today, but released today, uh, The Rolling Stones Angry, and you can uh, actually find the video, which is pretty cool because it's not really much about them. It's just a girl, um, um, just a girl. It's a uh, a model. In Just a, a car, town girl. Yeah, exactly. I can watch them get myself in trouble here. So it's a it's a model in a in a sports car going down a street, L.A. And there's billboards, and on the billboards, it um it's showing old clips of the Stones and what have you. I think there's three remaining because obviously Charlie Watts, the drummer, passed away uh, most recently. But apparently, also some of him is on this in the fact that uh, some of these tracks were recorded before he passed away. So very cool. The Rolling Stones still had it at whatever age they are, and the new song is called Angry. So we're going to be featuring it this afternoon just because I, I, I just I can't believe it. You know, I saw the Stones like 20 years ago, and they were old then and still phenomenal. I mean, I, I, you just can't believe it that they're, they're still banging them out this way. And I, I saw a clip and, you know, Keith was asked, you know, why did it take so long? He goes, well, I'm kind of lazy. <laughs> Man, uh, there you go. New Stones, angry. That's enough of that. Bank of Canada holds its interest rate at 5%. A lot of people, phew, over that. And uh, thank goodness they have, um, now that inflation is sitting down about, what, 3.2%, 3.3%, somewhere in there. Their goal is 2 It's like losing weight. The last couple of pounds are the hardest. You don't need to kill us for this. So thank goodness uh, the interest rates... Uh, have held steady at 5%. First time that's happened in a long, long time. And it's so funny. It depends on which news outlet you, you, you listen to or watch or read or what have you. Some say there could be more higher rates. And then others say, or oh, it could go down. <laughs> so. All right, people just get tired of this crap, right? Uh, so there you go. Bank of Canada holding steady at uh, 5%. Uh, Greenbelt to be uh, reviewed. Thank goodness. Because everybody thinks there's some extremists that think that this is, you just don't touch it, you never touch it, you know, listen to the Green Party, my God, uh, or, or even the NDP. It's They're more interested in a scandal than they are in building homes for their kids. 
it's just it's unbelievable what we've heard and uh that's continuing so uh, uh we'll talk about that over the course of of the hour uh the new housing minister has uh, come up and done a news conference we want to play you clips of that this is the new housing minister talking about um you got to have shovels in the ground by 2025 or we're going back into uh the green belt listen up Shovels in the ground by 2025 uh, is what my expectation is on those sites. But if they don't meet uh, the uh, uh, the requirements under the Greenbelt Review as well, uh, as I said, the mandated Greenbelt Review, uh, then they will not proceed and we will remove those lands. And as I said, the opposition is just, you got to reverse the decision. You can never go into the Greenbelt. How can you make that decision now when the population's growing by like a million people and there's, what, 20 to 40 years worth of housing left? This discussion is going on long before all long after all of these politicians are dead so to sit there and think you can't do anything to it that's it well the world changes and that's why there's always been reviews of this every 10 years which are coming up early this time because of the conflict but for politicians to sit and say that is the only thing you can't touch it you can't don't i don't ever want to discuss this or the future again Here's what uh, the minister, Paul Calandra, housing minister, had to say about adding and taking away. It will look at the entirety of the Greenbelt. There may be lands that uh, need to be added to the Greenbelt. There may be some uh, 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 some lands that, that are removed, but it will be a fair and open process that will uh, uh, live up to the spirit of, uh, of the original uh, uh, intent of the Greenbelt. And it's funny because a lot of people are backtracking now, a lot on the left saying, you know, I'm glad that the government has reversed its decision and is going to review this. The government has not reversed anything. They're just reviewing and speeding up the review, which frankly should have been done before all of this even started. Uh, and as far as blaming, this minister says he was for and still is what they are doing. Look, I'm not going to break confi- uh, cabinet confidentiality, but to be uh, completely clear, I was very supportive of, uh, of uh, removing uh, lands for uh, the purposes of meeting our goal of building 1.5 million homes. Here's the other thing that really ticks me off about this discussion, because once again, the extreme left or the extreme right have taken over this discussion. And it's either all the way this or all the way that. And the housing minister, who I thought handled himself really well, said, you know what? It doesn't have to be one or the other. There's no reason why we can't do both. And you know what? It's time to start listening to the young people. You have people now, even my own daughter, who thinks that she'll never have the chance to buy or rent a home, that it's out of reach for her. 17 years old. Shouldn't be, it shouldn't be where, shouldn't be where people are at. So I think we can just, I, mean, I, I think we can manage both, right? I, I really do. I think we can manage both. I'm very optimistic about where we can go on this. I think we can uh, uh, manage our natural heritage while meeting the goals of building 1.5 million homes. I'm tired of the extremism. We've got a prime minister who's taken the once great left of center liberal liberal party and drove it into the left ditch with the NDP, who they are partners with. We saw the the Wynn government take what McGinty had been doing for years and drive it to the extreme left. It's socialism. That's what we're living. And it's time to put people ahead of the green belt. It's time to it's time to get your kids into homes and have a future for them as well as the green belt. It's not one or the other, and it never has been. All right. uh, Every single year we go back to school, and we've done it today again. And my poor son, Kurt, he went in. He was looking so forward to it. He was home by noon because he's sick. Uh, Nothing serious. Don't worry. We checked him for COVID. Doesn't have it. But he does have the flu. He's got like a, a, a fever and such. 
and up in up in bed as we speak. Let's bring in Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist, professor emeritus, School of Population and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University. Find out where we are this year. Uh, Tim Sly is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thank you. So how do you compare this year to last and the one before that and the one before that? Where are we September 23? How do you feel? Well, we always need hope, don't we, Scott? Without that, we're really nothing. Uh, Things are looking pretty good, actually, at the moment. Uh, We've got, as we expected, yet more variants of this darn thing appearing. Uh, uh, We've built up a good wall of immunity, and I think that's going to help us. And and looking at the very early data from this latest variant that comes along, it's got the fancy name of BA2.86. It's another one of the the, uh, Omicron family, a huge family. Uh, but it, a couple of things we found out about it is that uh, this thing it tends to escape the immunity a bit more, probably two to three times uh, more effective at uh, avoiding the, the immunity we've built up, which is not a good thing, but it's not that bad. Uh, the, uh, the vaccines seem to work, especially if you, if you wait and get your, uh, your XBB uh, vaccine is coming along this fall. That uh, works quite well against it. Uh, uh, and it seems to have not that uh, not that great ability to infect your cells. It's a little bit less. It's sort of traded off the ability to uh, to escape the immunity for the more difficulty, uh, uh, you know, invading our cells. So that that's what we learned about the new one. Uh, so it, it, similar to Omicron, it, are we to in, interpret that it spreads quickly, but it's just not as lethal? Yeah, it's yet another Omicron, but it, we've been seeing Omicron now for about a year yeah. and a half, you know, continually streaming these things. Yeah, but we got to watch out for these things. You know, as usual, uh, if you're well protected, uh, just make sure you line up and get your shot in the fall when it's available. And we'll be hearing more about that, I think, in the next uh, three or four weeks as to when that will appear in different cities. But just like, just as we normally get our flu shots, we get one of these as well. And I think in time, not this year, but probably future years, it'll be a combined uh, shot of, say, three flu antigens and one coronavirus antigen, and that'll protect us for the uh, for the winter term. That was my next question, Tim. Uh, what is this booster going to look like? A year ago, we were talking about the combo booster with the flu shot, and um, what's your message moving forward into the fall? Um, flu shot and a booster? There would be two separate things at this point? Yeah, we've been talking about combinations, but of course, the combination that you talk about is probably the most likely uh, thing on the horizon. But the other combination is remember it was a it was a, a double a double uh, uh, coronavirus uh, vaccine. But what the authorities now are saying, look at what we were doing was combining one of the earlier varieties, alpha or delta or something like that, together with a new coronavirus, as a new uh, Omicron virus. And of course, that first one has got no effect at all at the moment. So that's being dumped. So we're going to go back now, probably this fall, to a, a single antigen. It'll be based on the XBB type. But uh, in terms of uh, combining it with flu, uh, we don't know what will happen yet. Uh, it's in the vaccine producer's uh, uh, mind and bailiwick, but I think that's the direction we're going to go in. Uh, the fewer shots we get, the better it'll be. So if we can combine them, good. Uh, what about back to school this year, 2023 edition? Yeah, there's been a we, there's been a wave every year since 2020, and we, mm-hmm. there's going to be a wave this year. We look from we see from the uh, the wastewater signal that it is still lurking around. It's still there. Every you know you get the odd person that says, "Oh, I've just been 
tested positive. It's 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 happening on a more routine basis now. So in fact, mm. no countries are really keeping uh, a list of or numbers of of cases anymore. That's gone way ago. We all know that everybody's had either several vaccines and probably one of several infections, whether they knew it or not. This is the normal state. This is what it looks like as we get into a an endemic and a population that is endemically protected. All right. Uh, Dr. S- uh, Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, professor emeritus, School of Population and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University. Boosters are on the way, but we're certainly in a lot better shape than we have been in years past. But it is September, so kids are walking around ill. It's I got one upstairs. Uh, Tim, thanks for the time. Be well. Always a, always a pleasure, Scott. Bye-bye. All right, writing in the conversation, Kyle Matthews of Concordia University says that while there has been some success in efforts to cu- uh, curb the human rights uh, abuses perpetrated by Russia and China, recent developments have raised concern that the progress has stagnated and maybe even regressed. However, there are a couple of ways to re uh, to correct the course and rein in the governments of China and Russia. Kyle Matthews, with his executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, Concordia University, and here now, Kyle. Thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks for having me on. So how big a priority do you think this is for government? I'm, uh, you know, we've been hearing a lot about uh, alleged uh, election interference by the Chinese Communist Party, yet we haven't got a public inquiry. We're hearing a lot of uh, about cybersecurity and, and attacks by Russia, yet little seems to be done. Uh, where does human rights fall if we don't really care too much about those or those aren't a priority? Well, history shows us countries that, commit mass atrocity crimes don't usually keep that within their own borders and and eventually it it, it leaks outside of their borders so we hmm. should be very concerned that authoritarian states that uh, imprison journalists imprison political activists uh, and also commit atrocity crimes are not good partners and should not be trusted and i'm hoping that democratic states can include are starting to wake up to the fact that we have a, a serious problem on our hands and more has to be done to um ensure that uh, the progress that was made uh, doesn't go off the rails and we don't enter an authoritarian future. So uh, a good example of that maybe, Kyle, the alleged police stations, which are harassing Chinese Canadians who are living here. That's one example. We, we, we've learned over and over again that, that China is not just uh, harassing their own citizens, but, but actually doing so with impunity within Canada, uh, targeting uh, Chinese dissidents, uh, uh, Muslim minorities uh, who are trying to raise awareness about what's happening to the Uyghurs. This is a growing threat. And um, if they don't respect our sovereignty and international norms, then eventually we have to push back or at least do what we can to show that we're not uh, we're not going to stand idle when um, when these things happen on our territory or at least internationally as well. Uh, we've certainly seen the direction of China change course. Uh, at one time, this was the golden goose. Everybody was trying to do business, and then all of a sudden, things went south. Uh, and we're hearing that there's rumblings within uh, the hierarchy in, in the Chinese Communist Party that they're not happy with the, the direction that the country is going. Are you hearing anything of that? Well, I am. I, I think uh, what you're seeing is that um, an authoritarian state might provide stability, uh, for economic growth, but now that we're learning there's forced labor, uh, we're learning about property theft by the Chinese government, and I think we're seeing the the reputation of China really take a nosedive. Countries around the world are afraid of what it's doing. They're afraid that it's it's uh, building up its military. So countries are, are starting to decouple from China, starting to, to stop their investments. Um, and I, I think 
there might be a wake-up call in China saying that we're going down a path and uh, aligning ourselves with Russia and uh, North Korea perhaps is not the smartest move we should make. So you're saying there are ways to rein this back in. Many have said that this is all too interwoven within life here now to, to, to do that. So how can we, how can we protect ourselves? Well, I think there are a couple of things we can do. One thing is we need to educate people about what is happening. Uh, you know, the Chinese government, as well as Russia, they go to great lengths to spread disinformation online. They give uh, uh, support to uh, people with no expertise to uh, falsify the truth. So they go to great lengths to kind of lie and create an alternate reality. We have to counter that. We we have to have open debates and not be afraid of speaking about that. Second, though, is that we're seeing, um, you know, the war in Ukraine uh, the attack against Ukrainian people and atrocities by Russia, we must support Ukraine to defend itself. Because if we don't, it sends a message to China that it might be able to get away with that, with those kind of behavior in Asia. And that is not something we want to see. So there's no magic bullet, but I think I think we have to wake up both as individuals in society, Canadians, individual Canadians, and as our government to actually um, take off the rose-colored glasses and and see the threat that's upon our doorstep. Where is this conversation on the world stage, Kyle, and Canada's position in it? Where where are we? Um, we're seeing more countries unify, concerned about both Russia and China. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, um, Australia, the UK, and the US form a defense agreement. We've seen uh, the US uh, with Japan and South Korea uh, form a, a strategic alliance, and also recently the US and Vietnam. So we're seeing in Asia a total change of perceptions. Um, Canada might be a little bit behind the ball. I think, you know, two oceans on our side, we think the U.S. will protect us. But with Donald Trump, we never know what's going to happen. So we have to start, I think, um, investing in our diplomacy, our military, um, and take stronger action domestically to stop any spying or intrusions against uh, Chinese Canadians or other Canadians who are speaking up about these issues. Uh, we talk about one uh, these two countries individually. They're both a threat in certain ways. But what about together? How 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 close are they? Because although they may have the same enemy, the ideology is not necessarily the same. They're not the same, but they they have one ultimate goal: is that they want to they want to weaken the U.S. And without the U.S., the Western alliance um, cannot mount the strength economically or militarily to defend itself. We really need the U.S. to counterbalance. Uh, China and Russia. So so they're unified. I mean, recently, um, when Xi Jinping visited Russia, he said to Putin, we're about to see changes that haven't happened in 100 years, and we're going to drive those changes together. If that's not a warning sign, um, I don't know what what is. Is China, or, and really, I mean, I think the, the on Russia, this has been answered by the three-day uh, uh, operation that was supposed to take Ukraine, and here we are, however many uh, years in, this is still going on. So obviously Russia does not have the strength militarily that it once did. Uh, is China really the powerhouse that everybody thought or is, is expecting it to be if, in fact, they can't cooperate with the West? Well, I think I think yes, I think um, overall, uh, from economic uh, an economic perspective, China is more powerful than Russia. Uh, from the military, it rests to be seen, um, but it is um, uh, building its military at, at a rate un unprecedented, where countries like Japan are very concerned. Um, so, I think that is the ultimate bigger threat. Um, there are some thoughts that um, you know the economic miracle of China might not be. Uh, as sound and stable as we thought, and and we now see um, 
basically the Chinese government um, disappearing data uh, about youth unemployment, uh, about uh, the housing, um, the, the housing bubble that's there. So, so it might have some problems, but as well as the demographic decline of China, but those make it even more dangerous that if the leaders think that they want to become the growing power of the 21st century, they might see this as the moment to take action. And that's why um, we must not allow our universities or others to invest in China, um, putting aside the genocide of the Uyghurs. You know, there are so many strategic and economic reasons that we have to be a bit more careful. And and hopefully we will uh, join our allies and um, and do more um, because the alternative is, is is not a great alternative. Kyle Matthews with uh, Kyle Matthews with us, executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies at Concordia University, writing in the conversation. Uh, Kyle of Concordia University says that while there has been some success, we may be slipping backwards. Kyle, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me on. We're asking if you could put a slogan or something on a Tim Horton shirt, what would it be? I think just a, a basic coffee stain and maybe some red jelly would be good and no need for any print whatsoever. Uh, the reason we're talking about this is because Tim Hortons is talking clothes. Uh, Tim wear, donut wear, whatever you want to call it. So it's not just the donuts, the soup and the muffin, the coffee. It's now you can actually wear Tim Hortons stuff. Uh, why go in that direction? Let's bring in Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID, and he's here now. Bruce, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. So, Bruce, not the first time something like this has happened. I mean, you know, Coca-Cola, everybody like that, they, lots of companies do this. Why is Tim's getting into this uh, area of business? I think it's really part of their initiative to try to create, you know, sort of super engagement, super brand engagement with their most, um, you know, uh, especially with young people. So they're really trying to sort of connect as a brand with youngsters. And they know that if they can get people to wear the shirts, you know, people start to talk about them. You start to take pictures for Instagram and it, it's only going to help them from a popularity standpoint. And I think they're trying to take and, and not really take almost reaffirm their rightly place as sort of a pop culture icon within Canada. Um, and, and, you know, to the point where they've created this focused line so that people can sort of, you know, make, make Tim's cool with young people. I think trying, that's what they're trying to do. Trying to go back to the fame and fortune of say 20 years ago, 30 years ago when they were originally owned by the original owners and, and it was a different place than it is now. Yeah. Kind of a little bit of that kind of the heritage, you know, like Tim Hortons has a huge heritage, right? Um, you know, with the original hockey player, Tim himself, and just the history of the brand, the old logos and the old stores and the old coffee cups. There's there's a lot there. And I think what Tim's is able to do with this lineup, they've got two lines. They've got sort of more of a new contemporary look and they've got sort of a retro look. But it really kind of, it, it just kind of builds the brand. It builds sort of, they call it sacred consumption. You know, when, when someone loves mm -hmm. the brand and, and they're consuming that, it's sacred consumption. And a lot of companies, they aspire to get to that level. So I think Tim's is sort of reinforcing that with this with this line. Can this approach backfire? Some may say, you know, you should work on the food, not the clothing. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that. I think it's a very low-risk move. You know, um, I, I don't think much is going to happen I, in the negatives to this. I think that, you know, even if they don't sell a lot, they're getting good PR out of it. They're getting some good talking about it. And, um, you know, I must admit the retro thing is pretty cool. I think that's pretty hip. 
So you know what? They're they're only going to get positive acclamations from this. I can't see this really creating any negative sentiment toward them at all. So if you're a fan, you're going to buy in anyway. I think so. If you love Tim Hortons, you know, and it's a big part, you might buy a shirt, you know, and wear it. It's kind of fun. It kind of lets you sort of show off your personality to others. How uh, do you how do you do this and and not look like the staff? How do you keep these separate? You talked about a retro and then a more uh, contemporary sort of view. Where, where, how do you position this so you know it doesn't look like you're wearing what an employee would wear? Yeah, well, from what I've seen just on the press release and everything, it looks like this is a very different sort of outfit than the staff would wear. You know, it's totally different in terms of design, color, you know, um, everything. You know, so so you won't see any overlap. So there probably won't be a lot of confusion. You know, no one's going to say, hey, do you work at Tim Horton? They're probably <laughs> just going to say, hey, you know, the, this person has a great, cool T-shirt. Where'd you get it? I like that retro feel or I like that new contemporary feel. Would it have been smarter for them to tie this to their charity with the proceeds going to the camp day or something like that rather than just, yeah, come buy a hoodie from us? I think that's a good point. I think there there could have been a missed opportunity there where they tried to tie it into something else. Um, and I don't know why they didn't. You know, maybe it was timing or they just wanted to sort of explore having a standalone, you know, sort of garment store. But this store is also going to be able to, you're going to be able to buy the K-Cup uh, pods and some other merchandise on there too, not just clothing on this website. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't know why they didn't tie it. Uh, but anyways, maybe they wanted to keep it clean, keep the message focused, because sometimes when you tie it into a charity, um, from a messaging standpoint, the actual shirts get lost in the main message. So it's, right. maybe they just wanted to sort of keep this clean and, and just sort of focus on this and see what happens. Uh, but again, it's not like you have to tie it to a charity because it's your own thing. And then just privately say, yeah, a portion of the sales goes to, um, you know, Kim, Tim Horton's camp day. I think that would have been a nice gesture because then you would have made it even even cooler, right? You know? So yeah, then there's a, then there's an objective, then there's a purpose for buying one. Not only do I want to, you know, promote the brand and it's it's what I am, but also I'm helping. Yeah, and that that's something that people, you know, they think of Tim's, they think of that charity. So, it could be a bit of a miss, you know, that they didn't do that because it looks a bit like sort of naked ambition where they're just out there flogging stuff, you know, yeah, for their yeah. own benefit without helping other people. That may be a little inconsistent with what Canadians feel the brand stands for. That's a valid point, Bruce. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID. Tim Hortons, would you wear their apparel? Bruce, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too. Take care. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Another organization has seen the value and the business case of Canadian liquid natural gas, even though the Prime Minister has no vision in sight for Canadian liquid natural gas. Canadian pipeline giant Enbridge is betting big, but are they really considering natural gas as a transition fuel uh, as we get into more renewable energy? And as the world looks at that transition and shift away from more polluting forms of fuel like coal. Uh, Enbridge buying three U- uh, U.S. Util- uh, utilities for $9.4 billion. To talk more about it, Dan McTagg with us, President for Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me, Scott. So, wow, here's another company that sees a business case for Canadian liquid natural gas or just natural gas in general. How do you, how do you square this? 
Well, the fact they're doing this in the United States is no surprise. The fact they're buying three companies uh, that are really utilities in places like North Carolina and Virginia and uh, Ohio, uh, states that are not known for uh, their attacks uh, like Canada's uh, federal uh, government is on uh, energy like natural gas, makes this possibly an interesting deal for a company that really is headquartered in Canada. It's amazing if you go and get U.S. assets in order to make the Canadian company look a lot bigger than it is. But that tends to be the story we've seen for quite some time. Yeah, the U.S. talks a big deal about green energy and puts a lot of money towards it, but they don't stop these kind of projects. So Enbridge, I think, is making a a bid for the future. And uh, while the situation in Canada uh, looks like uh, at least this regime wants to attack natural gas, and drive up its cost, and uh, you know, render in many provinces uh, the security of our energy and heating electricity uh, significantly riskier. Um, this company is saying, "Well, there's less risk in the United States. Let's go there." And it's putting its money where its mouth is. This, by the way, Scott, is the reason why a, a much larger example of why the Canadian dollar continues to lose ground, and that's critical. People understand that. Because everything you and I consume in this country is priced, whether it's made here or not, in U.S. dollars. And when the Canadian takes 136 pennies to buy a U.S. dollar, that adds mightily to the cost of everything. It's inflationary, and also it's sapping our purchase power. No wonder we feel squeezed. How are governments on both sides of the border reacting to this? Well, I think the governments are sort of taking a a wait-and-see approach. I mean, the United States will, of course, look at the antitrust uh, and and ensure that this does square with that. I don't see this being a big issue. I don't think it removes competition. It uh, is uh, an opportunity to uh, for some of those utilities to uh, to do much better in terms of their balance sheets because they're dealing with a company that is still the largest pipeline carrier in North America. It used to be the uh, uh, Trans Canada Pipelines, which of course had to change its name uh, given uh, the Canadian government's uh, complete and utter disinterest in uh, pipelines. Uh, and of course, uh, given the you know the significant you know uh, number of players in the United States, not just by state but right across their country, uh, I think this is uh, probably seen as a very welcome uh, news in the U.S. and it, more welcome news as long as Canada continues to be dominated by a prime minister who says there's no business case for natural gas or liquid natural gas, while the United States continues to cash in on our uh, on our narrow mindedness. So um, uh, this is a little off topic here, but um, uh, earlier in the week we were discussing a a power swap deal between Ontario and Quebec, each one giving um, extra power to the other when it is available, which seems like, geez, a common sense idea to me. Um, If we're getting so cozy talking to Quebec about energy, uh, is there any chance of of having a conversation about pipelines or just how to be more self-sufficient within our own country? Well, I think the deal is just to build on what has been done before and recognition that in the summer, sometimes Ontario needs to borrow a bit of energy, but in the winter, Quebec needs all of our energy here in Ontario. Some of it produced, in fact, by natural gas. And, of course, we know uh, our strength of our hydro just down the street from you, Niagara, and our uh, our uh, our fleet of nuclear reactors, some that were in my old riding. But I think this really speaks to the, the much bigger and more broader issue, and that's uh, that uh, Quebecers. Uh, do, in fact, when polled, support pipelines, natural gas pipelines, absolutely, oil pipelines, yeah, but in both cases, the majority. It is that the elites 
and those pushing the uh, the green agenda don't want to hear this. They're doing everything they can to buy pollsters and buy, uh, you know, uh, you call them uh, what they are, talking heads, and uh, uh, those that that uh, that can write all sorts of stuff. Uh, who used to work in you know certain sectors of the media. I know many of them; they're old friends and people I worked with as a member of parliament. At the end of the day, Quebecers aren't stupid. They realize pipelines uh, is very much a part of the future. And what's good for Alberta is also good for Quebec. What's good for Quebec is good for Alberta. And I think in that case, in that scenario, a new prime minister, a new day, a new majority government, I think will bulldoze over uh, the rather silly objections that have been put up that somehow Canada's bad. But uh, countries like China, as Stefan Gibo, our environment minister, pointed out, China's okay. You can't mention anything about their emissions, but you sure can come over, drop your drawers, and crap all over Western Canada. So on that note, what is the fallout from the environment minister going to China and trying to give them a lesson on climate change, to which they said, thanks, but no thanks. So what was the objective? Why the hell did he go there? In another time, he'd be charged with treason and sedition. He did not tell people he was part of an organization that has direct links to the Communist Party of China or the People's Communist Party. Uh, I'm not sure why he went there. Uh, Perhaps it is uh, very much... uh, uh, a part of uh, what Trudeau has said, that he admires their basic dictatorship, but I didn't realize he would take it to that extent. But I am not in any way, shape, or form surprised by this, Scott. People need to listen to this. Stefan Guibault has been, over his lifetime, a big backer of things China. In particular, when the Huawei uh, in Brooklyn took place, he took the side of Huawei, saying that uh, North American and Western telecoms uh, were actually uh, falling behind Huawei, and that's why they were beating up and using Meng Wanzhou. Uh, this is a fellow who has manifested uh, his interest in uh, in authoritarianism and ty- tyranny. This is a fellow who thinks that you shouldn't be able to own or buy a car. You should make it uh, more expensive for people to eat. You should make it more expensive and harder for Canadians to buy and own their own uh, their own home. This is a guy that's attacked our oil sands and energy sector. Uh, he wants one of the phased out, and of course, in his earlier time, an absolute separatist, mm. as a, from a far left group that. Uh, has promoted socialism, not just here, but in places like Africa. When you start to think about Stefan Guibault, forget the fact that the guy's a criminal, he's a felon, for whatever reason he did it. He's the last person you should have in Parliament, and he's certainly the last person you should have uh, in, in, uh, in, a, in a ministerial position. At the end of the day, I come back to my point, in a real time, he would have been shown the door, given the boot, and worse, potentially put under sedition charges. Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP Embridge, uh, buying three U.S. Uh, companies uh, for about $9.4 billion. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care. It's Hamilton Today, 900 CHML in Hamilton. We're coming back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, back to school today, back to class, and uh, a lot of kids pretty excited about it. I know my kid was. Um, and uh, unfortunately, he went for half a day and then came home sick. He got the flu. Uh, we stuck the thing up his nose and checked him out. He's good there, but um, 
yeah, he's 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 been sick. Now, mind you, he'd been at football practice for a week, so it didn't just happen on the first day, I'm sure. Uh, but anyway, uh, very excited they were about all going back and, and things pretty much back to normal with sports and such. And then, boom, so much for the first day. What is it like this year? Are we easing some of the anxieties that we had in the last couple of years as we've survived a uh, global pandemic? Let's bring in Danielle Siriani-Molnar, Brock University Associate Professor of Child and Youth studies and with us now danielle thank you for the time hope you're well i am well i hope your son feels better soon i know what a drag he was so stoked about this and then he's home by noon Ah, it's just the flu he's fine um but anyway uh how is this year back to class compared to even last it was kind of better but you know the years before that are are we still having some of those pent-up anxieties that we have of the last couple of years I believe so. I mean, the pandemic, um, I give it to all the kids. They 100% took the brunt of a lot of the mental health issues and the stresses. And this year, I mean, on the positive side, there's a lot more social interaction. It seems like a lot of the routines are back to normal. But there's also a lot of extra stress this year because a lot of instructors, teachers, uh, board officials, of course, feel pressure to kind of ease the learning gap and to get the students kind of back uh, to normal with respect to achievement. So there's a lot of additional stressors this year that may not have been there pre-COVID. That's a good point, because as things sort of get back to normal or whatever the new normal is, then, uh, yeah, we've got to get back to the new normal. But, you know, again, it must it, I know even for for older people like me, you can't go through something like this for three years of your life and come out the other end the same. Something changes. Absolutely. And, you know, we can't expect kids just to snap their fingers and just, you know, oh, yeah. okay, let's forget that ever happened. And you have a lot of kids who they lost years of socializing. Mm. They lost years of in-person schooling, um, a lot of uncertainty, which is anxiety's best friend. And a lot of kids are still struggling and adults, by the way, it's not just kids, but are struggling with that. So I think that's one of the things we need to do is be cognizant that, you know, the pandemic is still here to some extent. And even when we eventually fully come out the other side, um, we're going to definitely still be scarred by it to some extent. Uh, and you think, too, uh, we're older, so we've got more years of experience under our belt. But when you're, say, I don't know, 12, and this has been for a, a third or a fourth of your life, that's that's going to have an impact. Oh, absolutely. And the other thing that we have to remember is how many young people missed out on major milestones that yeah. they can't get back. So things like prom, graduation, even just school dances. There's a lot of kids out there who are in high school. They've never been to a school dance. So we have to keep that in mind and how this could add like some more stress, a little bit more anxiety for these kids. Talk a little bit about that, because, you know, obviously during all of this, it was all about health and and, get, and staying healthy and, and, and getting healthy and what have you. But you forget about the social aspects. Now, older, obviously, you know, you don't go out as much, you don't do this. But as you said, and I, my kids, same thing, missed out on graduation, first year of university, all that sort of stuff. Um, those are things you can't get back. How much of an impact does it have? Some say, oh, you don't experience it. You don't know what you're missing. Yeah, no, from what our research is showing, um, it actually had quite a big impact where a lot of the socializing went to online communications. But from what we're hearing, a lot of the kids are saying that it was not an adequate substitute. So social media, even just talking on, 
you know, platforms like video platforms, things like that, they really miss the social interaction. And one of uh, the findings that my graduate student found in her research is a lot of the kids were upset with the lack of nonverbal communication, like not being able to read tone and body language. So they have a lot to catch up on. It's funny because prior to this, we were saying, and we have this discussion all the time, you know, how much is technology invading our life? You know, you'll often see a group of kids standing around in a circle and they're all on their phone talking to each other as opposed to all looking up talking to each other. Have we learned or have they learned something about this? So, you know what, I'm going to put my phone down and I'm going to go see my friend face to face. Yeah, I think it's mixed, right? So a lot of kids are having very different reactions where some are on their phones even more because they kind of habituated. And there are a lot of kids now we're hearing from them in interviews and surveys where they're saying, you know what? No, <laughs> I need to lessen this. And I kind of appreciate now the in-person more than ever before. Uh, this is sort of off topic, Danielle, but uh, there's been chatter this week about areas uh, removing cell phones from classrooms. Is that a discussion worth having considering what we've been through? Oh, it's so tricky because with safety concerns that a lot of people have and, yeah. you know, with kids especially just, you know, we're still in this pandemic. I don't know where we are in it, but, you know, it's become um, a security for them. So they've already experienced so much change and so much pressure. You know, a full removal might be difficult for, and not only for the kids, but for the parents, right? Because mm. we're seeing higher levels of codependency now too, where, You know, we had kids at home for two to three years where, you know, they were with us all the time. And I say that because I'm a parent as well. And now even some parents are having a hard time letting go because Hmm. they're not used to their kids being out so much. So what advice do you have for parents at this stage of all of this as we head back to school? Yeah, a few things. Like, number one, uh, be open, approachable, and keep the lines of communication open. So especially about mental health, like it doesn't always have to be when you suspect a child struggling. Bring it up even when they're fine, just so it's normalized. So if struggles do arise, hey, you're a safe person and approachable person to go to. Routines are so important through childhood and adolescence because they provide a sense of security They take some of the uncertainty out, which, as I said, is anxiety's best friend. So, you know, healthy eating, regular sleep patterns, building in regular times for homework and friends, and trying to promote a balance for the kids. Because, uh, again, because we're coming out of the pandemic, a lot of parents, they feel pressure. So it's like, you know, oh, like, do well in your academics. You got to get on it. But, oh, make sure you're in extracurriculars. And, oh, and make sure you have time for friends. And a lot of time the Mm. kids are saying, how am I supposed to do all of this? So building in like a nice routine and encouraging your child to have a routine can take some of the stress off. Uh, do parents, sometimes we don't realize how important it is for kids to have a structure. And often when they rebel, it's because they're looking for that discipline. They're looking for that guidance. Absolutely. Structure, as I said, it's a sense of security for a lot of kids and adolescents, and particularly for teenagers a lot of times parents like, well, how am I supposed to? And it's not necessarily imposing a structure, but encouraging them and negotiating with them a schedule that works for them and a structure that works for them. All right. Totally off topic and we're out of time. So I really need a short answer. Have you ever heard of the term soft parenting? Yes. 
All right. I am going to have you back, Danielle, to talk about that uh, in a later time because we're right out of time and it's completely off topic. Uh, Danielle Siriani Molnar with us, Brock University Associate Professor, Child and Youth Studies, talking about the kids heading back to class and we'll talk about safe parenting or sorry, soft parenting coming up in the future. Danielle, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. And I wish you and your family well. The Bank of Canada is keeping its benchmark interest rate unchanged, uh, but is warning future hikes may be needed to tame persistent inflation. Uh, that's on one side. And then I've heard other people today saying, or they could lower them. <laughs> so I guess it's who you listen to. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, here now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well. Thank you, Scott. I've read a few headlines, Ian, where, oh, they could go up again. They could go up again. But then I've talked to economists who said, you know what? They could easily lower them, too, if uh, things get caught up. What are your thoughts? Well, they're not lowering them right now, um, simply because the trend uh, and the Bank of Canada has repeatedly said, stated, the governors repeatedly stated that they're data driven and nothing wrong with that. They're looking at all the trend data, inflation data, GDP data, unemployment, and so on. All of the metrics. That's fully appropriate. And that's what they're doing. Uh, but it's far too soon because, first off, they're not down to two. And they have said they are going to go down to two. That is their stated goal. They've stated it repeatedly, ad nauseum, for the last two, three years. So there's absolutely zero evidence that they've suddenly said, no, we're going to be okay with three and we're going to go with three. So connect. let's all connect the dots. They haven't changed the goal from 2%. They're not at 2%. They are a data-driven, so they're not going to reduce the rates today. Um, they're going to keep on doing what they're doing. I think why they, and I think it's pretty clear, that they did not increase rates today because the GDP numbers were, I don't want to say they were a shocker, but they uh, let's just say they grabbed a lot of people's attention. And uh, in other words, they showed that the economy is cooling, it mm -hmm. is slowing down. New car sales are down. That's a big ticket item affected by interest rates, as is are the sales, as are the sales of furniture. So it is working. It is cooling things down. That's why they put their uh, rate increase on hold and said what they're really saying is, okay, let's see some more data. And then we'll see the next time around if the trend line downward continues. But I don't believe we're going to see rate declines before probably end of 2024, if not 2025. You don't start cutting the rate. You don't cut the rate in anticipation of inflation, you know, going down in the future. You wait until you know it is down to where you want it to be before you start to cut the rates. Uh, we know if you're on a diet, the last few pounds are the hardest to lose. What's yeah. the difference between 2 and 3%? Are the last few pounds worth the pain? Um. Uh, if you're asking me, and I think you are, uh, I, I do believe that. And yes, I understand it's painful. I've been saying from the very beginning, mm -hmm. it's very painful. And I actually lived through it as a mortgage manager, 77 through 81. And it was hell on earth. It was hell, no exaggeration. It was the worst, deepest recession since the Great Depression of the 1930s. We should never have let that genie out of the bottle, but government policy did then it had to be addressed. We did it again. We learned the lesson for about 35 years and then we forgot it. And now we're learning the lesson, relearning the lesson. And so we've got to get it back down to 2% because that's the optimal rate. Below that, you risk going into deflation, which is really bad also. 
uh, China might be going into deflation. We don't know. We did go through deflation, for those who don't uh, know their history. In the 30s, we were experiencing deflation. So why would you buy anything if you know that six months from now, everything is going to be cheaper? Why would you buy today if you know six months from now, prices will be down 10 or 20%? That's deflation. And that's really terrible. But so is uh, uh, inflation of four or five, 6%. It destroys the value of the currency, of the money, and it hurts low-income people the worst. So we know that. The data from 100 years of experience in countries around the world is showing that. So they've got to continue to get that down to 2% where it is stable and predictable, which is what we had for a third of a century when we had very good growth. And I'm talking the 1980s, the 1990s, the, the first decade, the second decade. We were doing very well with that 2% benchmark. And then we screwed it up when the, when the pandemic came along because we drove the rates down far too low. And then we put far too much monetary and fiscal stimulus into the system. And now we're paying the price and we've got to fix it. Uh, we're hearing reports, and you just mentioned Canada not performing economically as it should. Uh, GDP is down. Uh, how yes. does that enter into this discussion when it comes to interest rates? Because clearly uh, we're not performing, we're not building, we're not exporting as much as we should. That's right. And, and it may sound contradictory, but there's two separate issues. The, the GDP is, a, when I say it's short term, of course, you want growth in the long term. But right now, the GDP numbers we're looking at is res, uh, the, the GDP decline in growth is responding to the interest rates. And so the economy is cooling. And that's what they want. They want inflation is too many, too much, too many dollars chasing too few goods. And so we're bringing back it, it back into into balance between supply and demand. That's good. That's, that's We're proceeding in that direction. The longer term is what concerns a whole bunch of people, uh, people like Professor Jack Mintz and David Dodge and Don Drummond. They've published on this or they've written on this, given speeches on this. And I am one of those two that the numbers, the, the capital investment in our country is going down, down, down. And that should scare the daylights out of everybody. Um, Philip Cross, the very senior uh, a statistician economist from uh, StatsCan for many, a third of a century, now retired, uh, came to my class just before the pandemic. And he gave something very profound. He said something to my students. He said, if you want to know how, what an economy is going to look like, any economy, not just Canada, you look, what's, where's it going in the next two, three, four, five years? He said, if you want to look at one single thermometer, one single metric, look at the capital business investment in factories, plant, and equipment. If it's going up strongly, you're going to have a good next, you know, the next three, four, five years. Our capital investment is going down year after year after year. Companies are not investing. Investors are saying they're going somewhere else. They can get a better deal somewhere else. And we know that somewhere else, it's just a few miles away or a few kilometers away. It's called the United States because it, they're, they're looking at the relative investment opportunities here versus the states and they say eh, not so good here i'll go to the states dr ian lee with us associate professor sprott school of business carleton university bank of canada keeping its benchmark interest rate unchanged for now ian as always thanks for the time be well my pleasure scott thank you when there's an issue scott is all in on getting to the heart of it this is hamilton today with scott thompson on hamilton's news today's talk 900 chml 
Well, obviously, Greenbelt has been front and center as long uh, as well as the housing crisis uh, for a while now. And over the weekend, we have saw the resignation of the housing minister after that wasn't supposed to happen or going to happen, but used as a distraction. That's the reason they say that they have changed the housing minister, a new one now in place and chatter of a review, which was going to come up every 10 years anyway. So we're, I think we're due for it in two years. So it's going to happen two years early, which is a great idea. Uh, because obviously we have a housing crisis on, in our, on our hands and this needs to be addressed immediately. So a review is at hand. Uh, how does that change things? What does it mean for the city of Hamilton? Let's bring in Mayor, city of Hamilton, Andrea Horbath, and she is with us now. Andrea, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you, Scott. My pleasure. So how does this as well? Yeah, thanks so much so far. Uh, how does this change things for Hamilton? Does it change things for Hamilton? Well, what, what I would say is that um, it, it's uh, it's it's really clear that the that the decisions that the government made around the uh, the green belt were wrongheaded. Uh, the development of those lands, uh, I disagree with you because I, I don't believe that they're necessary. They're certainly not necessarily necessary in Hamilton's. Uh, perspective. And so um, I, I think that we are going to wait and see what happens next. But from my vantage point, things seem to be you know, falling apart the, the closer and harder we look at it. And uh, whether it's the Auditor General, whether it's the Integrity Commissioner, uh, whether it's the people of the City of Hamilton who have spoken very clearly and loudly, or the Council of the City of Hamilton, it, it's really clear that Hamilton Greenbelt development is not a good idea. And uh, and we want to make sure it doesn't happen. I just want to set the record straight. I, I'm not for I, I didn't say we should be developing lands on the Greenbelt. What I have said is that the great thing about the Greenbelt debate is it has opened up the discussion, uh, which we, along with experts, have had on this show for years, that there's still 20 to 40 years land available. But the problem is that alternative oh. land has not been developed as well uh, uh, or I either. Apologize. So. So at the end of the day, uh, it seems that we're more interested in the scandal than we are in the crisis at hand. Do you think, and, and you know, I know the majority of Ontarians, they're, they're passionate about the green belt. They're passionate about the environment. Uh, th that's just the Canadian way where we disagree is how we going, uh, how we go about doing these sorts of things. But do you think that Ontarians care more about the green belt debate than they do the housing crisis and getting their kids into a home? Well, I, I don't know that they see them as one or the other, to be honest with you. I think that the... That's kind of what it feels like, Andrea. Both of those Andrea. things can be true. Yeah, yeah. That, it, both of those things can be true. And I, I think that the frustration is that the uh, the housing crisis has gotten away from us, and uh, and it's um, and it, it exists. I mean, we can't pretend that it doesn't. What, what's a good thing that's happening here in our city is we're, we have been speeding up the process of approvals. Uh, we, we now see cranes in our downtown, for example, that we haven't seen in quite some time. Uh, but we are also working really, really hard uh, to meet uh, the, the timelines, the, uh, the expedited timelines that the provincial government has asked us to do. Uh, and that's, that's positive. Uh, but we also have a big gap in terms of affordability uh, and, uh, and housing that's attainable. And so I don't know that, um, that any of these conversations around greenbelt development or or, um, uh, you know, urban boundary expansion will have any impact whatsoever on the cost. And so when it comes to parents worrying about their kids never being able to afford a home in the community that they were born and raised in or that they made their home for a, a, a part of their lives, that's a, a problem that remains.
Uh, absolutely. Can we not do both? Can we not preserve our natural heritage and yep. build the houses that we need? Because it seems that this discussion is on either extremes. You know, we, we're hearing from uh, opposition parties that are saying you can never do this. You can never. And I, I just don't know how you can say that when we've got a situation that we have with the crisis and the population and coming out of a, a post global pandemic. I don't know how you can say never to any of this. Uh, I believe that there are uh, 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 solutions to be found, there are compromises sure. to be met. But to me, this has been a battle fought on the extremes, and there is absolutely no reason for this self-inflicted wound. Uh, do you think we're finally seeing the light of day? You were talking about how we're starting to see those alternate lands now be developed. But at the end of the day, do we not need a review to manage this belt for not only today, but for 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, because this problem is not going away. Well, nor is the problem of climate, the climate crisis, and nor is the problem of available, availability of a farmable uh, land. So where are we going to be getting our food? And I mean, some folks talk about, and, and I had a, a colleague when I was uh, in the, at the province, uh, provincial level who talked about food sovereignty for our kids. And so we want you, you know, with all due respect, we want Andrea, to have food as well. With all, you know, we have uh, Sylvain Charlebois, a food expert from Dalhousie University, on all the all the time, and that's just a red herring. We have greenhouses. We have a phenomenal food industry in this province, and to say that by nicking little pieces out of the green belt is going to cause us to starve is just is just silly. I'm not talking about starving, but what I am talking about is protecting our agricultural lands, and and that's an important piece, and and that's something that I, I think is uh, is, is it more important than protecting? And, and, what I, and what I what I don't disagree with though is the fact that having that review uh, that was built into the uh, the development of the greenbelt in the first place uh, is necessary. But it's not just one-sided. Do we do we have a review to see if we need to take more land out? Maybe we maybe the review says we need to put more land in. So I yeah. think we need to stay kind of uh, open-minded on, in that regard. Uh, but but look, it's not just it's not just agricultural land, and I think we know that, right? It's wetlands. Uh, it, it's making sure that we have uh, the connectivity of uh, uh, of space for biodiversity, which which impacts things like climate change. I mean, there's there's a lot to it, and I'm no scientist, and so I, I don't want to get into the the details about that. But if I can go back to how do we deal with the, not only the housing crisis per se, but how do we get, do you remember we used to talk about starter homes? We don't mm. have starter homes anymore. So how do we get those kinds of homes developed that do actually provide that stepping stone for a young person uh, to be able to, 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 to affordably uh, you know, come, come into home ownership. You so know, with all due respect, like, Andrea, you know, with all, with all due respect, with all due respect, with all due respect, Andrea, I'm looking across the road and there's a bazillion townhouses and starter homes going up. What keeps them unaffordable is there's not enough of them. So I think, again, the affordable, the affordable point is a red herring. The reason nothing is affordable is because of lack of supply. Even houses that are small and are supposed to be cheap are really expensive because there's not enough of them. So again, the affordable thing's really a red herring. It's we need more and a lot more of them. Well, and I don't think anybody disagrees with uh, the fact that we need more housing. In fact, that's something we all agree on. Uh, but we have to make sure that it's uh, it's housing that meets the housing uh, needs of the community and, and our housing needs in Hamilton are going to be different than the housing needs in other communities. 
And so the townhouses and staff townhouses and, and those kinds of things, uh, yeah, we need more of them. There's, there's no disagreement there. We, uh, I agree with you. And in fact, uh, what our city is able to do is meet our housing target that the, that the province asked us to agree on. And, and, and we made sure that we agreed on our housing target. Uh, but that housing target can be met within our existing urban boundary. Uh, and that is what the uh, Auditor General confirmed in yeah. terms of her. And um, I guess the, I guess the big question is here, Andrew. I guess the big question here, Andrew, is why hasn't it been done and why has it taken so long? But we're fresh out of time. Was I too hard on the mayor? I didn't mean to be. And I didn't mean to cut her off. But I'm so tired of hearing the same standard political answers that all we've been hearing for decades. And, you know, again, I, I didn't mean to be rude or, or cut her off. But, you know, it's the same stuff. Affordable housing. What's affordable housing? You know, if you're building a home that's a thousand square feet and there's only one and there's 500 people that want to buy it, it ain't an affordable house, no matter how big or what the furnishings are. Same thing if it's a 5,000 square foot home. It's the same if there's a shortage. So this all this bull about affordable housing, what's afford? Nothing is affordable because of lack of supply, whether you're trying to rent an apartment or buy a McMansion, as the left likes to call it. Nothing is affordable. So can we please pack the affordable line away and work on quantity since the story of an oakville shop teacher wearing oversized prosthetic breasts and an outfit that many would call unprofessional attire regardless of your gender or transition first made headlines last year joe Joe warmington of the toronto sun has tracked this story as we learned recently the teacher at the center of the controversy from halton is now in the hamilton region today was the teacher's first day of school and it seems like things have come to a resolution as the clothing has not only been subdued but the teacher's identity as a man most importantly a man with appropriate attire so uh the story is completely changed and it's over i guess let's bring in joe warmington columnist with the toronto sun and here now joe thanks for the time hope you're well yeah it's great to to be with you and uh, it's great when you're doing all this great radio it's been a long time since i've been with you so Cool that you're arguing with uh, Mayor Horwath. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Joe, Joe I've been meaning she, I've been meaning you know. to have you on, and we will get you on uh, more in the future. But anyway, uh, so uh, you've seen this whole story transpire. Yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah. It's, it seems yeah. that everything's everything is okay now. Where are we? Well, I think they. You know, there was. I was out there today. Everyone was curious uh, how Teacher Lemieux would show up today because we've seen the last couple of days looking like a man as opposed to you know, the stuff you described from last year. And so, you know, we just wanted to confirm that to see exactly. And it was quite an operation to get Lemieux in the school. I mean, they did a, a decoy as if it was the prime minister or a movie star or something. And uh didn't catch uh, everybody. I mean, there's some great uh, media in town here from the Daily Mail and also from the New York Post, uh, you know, the, the, the big players, you know what I mean, that know how to do this stuff. And they... And they uh, they showed how how to do that, and they got good pictures. And obviously, my colleague Ernest Rosick as well got some good pictures yesterday. And so you know, you say, well, why are you doing that? Why are you know why is the media covering it? Well, it's because Lemieux, him or herself, depending on how what uh, you know what identity is in play at different times, has indicated that these were natural breasts, if you will. And, you know, there's, there's, that's the, the loose end in this. No one knows, you know, what is the reason that the school board is not questioning that? Uh, you know, is it because they don't care what 
someone says to the media and what's reported. And that's pretty well it. So I guess, it, you know, I guess uh, politicians uh, aren't always honest or, you know, I guess they, you know, that kind of thing. So maybe sometimes you have to let a, a little white light go, I guess, but the school board seems to be doing that. But, you know, that's the only thing that's really unclear to me is how do you go from telling the public that this was natural and then turn around that you show up without it. And so, you know, I guess if the kids and the parents and the school board don't care, maybe it is a time to move on from it. Uh, are you surprised Hamilton jumped at this? Well, no, because, you know, I think they've handled it really well. And, you know, who would be really proud of that would be Nora Francis Henderson herself. <laughs> I mean, there's nobody, I mean, Nora would have been at that uh, event. She, and for those that don't know who Nora was, she was a great journalist and also politician in, you know, depression time. I'm not sure of the era, but Hamilton, you know, the famous Delco strike. And they threatened her. So there's nothing Lemieux, Lemieux thinks that, uh, you know, it's tough uh, sledding. But Nora, uh, <laughs> they threatened her life and everything else. And she stood up to everybody. She was out sometimes as the acting mayor of Hamilton as well. So, you know, I thought that was interesting. Uh, when I saw the name of the school, I thought, wow, isn't that great that, uh, you know, the history of, of such a, a legendary journalist like that. And um, you know what? Um, the, the reporters there were really great. Uh, you know, Jack Morfitt from the uh, New York Post and John Kennedy uh, from the Daily Mail. And I didn't see any Hamilton reporters there. And I find that interesting, especially with the name Nora on the school. So I didn't understand mm. that. I'm glad you called, though, because it shows that you're covering your backyard. You have to do that. Well, again, I, I don't care what someone's gender is, what they're transitioning to. That's your own business, and and you know, um, do whatever makes you you feel good. But this was becoming a distraction to the point of bomb threats and everything else. And and I understand a person's individual rights, but at what point do we keep track, or do we take into consideration the rights of all of the students and everybody else? So you know, that's the thing. Like it, and that's the that's why I think the school board in Hamilton has handled it well so far. They put it out what what it is. They've let Lemieux, uh, you know, they're gonna. I guess they're gonna turn a blind eye to that one thing that I mentioned already. But you know, they, they kind of they didn't harass the reporters. They they dealt with it, and now it's kind of over. As long as Lemieux doesn't show back up with, you know, that same attire again, or there's no incidents in the school, and the kids are there to learn. Looks like great great families there. Looks, it's just a great school. You can just tell, and a great part of the city. And so I think it is over, and I think it should be over. And uh, hopefully Lemieux uh, gets back to, you know, as a good teacher. Um, there's nothing wrong with the attire uh, that we're seeing uh, now. There was lots wrong with it last year. I mean, it, yeah. you know, I've never seen a woman dress like that. Yeah. I've never seen that, that kind of thing. And, yeah. and so, you know what, uh, it, it, this story is really about the woke movement, how far, you know, yeah. how far yeah. people can push it. And the, the system has no way to say, look, Hold on here, because the minute you say hold on here, then you're canceled. And so that's what we've yep. learned in this. And, uh, you know, some some of the media stuck up. The Toronto Sun has, has done a good job. I worked for 30 years at the Toronto Sun. I'm very proud of the way we've handled it. And, you know, we've tried to talk. We have talked to Lemieux. It, this is not personal. Like, you know, I know Lemieux's probably listening right now and, uh, and, and probably should come on your show. Did a great interview with the New York Post. There's, there, you know, there's... there's Maybe there's something that can be learned from all of this. And this mm -hmm. is not a personal battle. This is just about protecting the young people in the schools.
Yeah, and you're absolutely correct, Joe. It should have never got to this far. It should have there should have been leadership somewhere along the way and help given out and 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 some sort of solution found. But it just seemed that uh, the Halton board was completely turning a blind eye to it all. They had a lot of a lot of problems because there was people that went on sick leave, uh, stress leave, all those bomb threats. You know, like the Halton board. You know, I feel kind of bad for the people there too because they just didn't know what to do. And it, it should never have happened. How Lemieux is dressed this year is the right way to go about it. If Lemieux wants to do this on, you know, the vacation time or on their own time, as you know, up to, up to Lemieux, uh, you know, Mr. And, 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 and again, as we pointed out, it's nothing about gender identity. It's about appropriate dress. Uh, Joe Warmington with his columnist with the Toronto Sun. Joe, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. All the best. I can't believe that Horwath's brother talked to me than you. That's cool. <laughs> Take care, dude. Thanks. Good luck with that. All the best. Hey, all right. If you like common sense is coming back into the woke world that we seem to be living in, the extremes, either you're on the extreme left or the extreme right, and hey, you do this or you don't do that. You're on this team, you're on that team. I really, I'm feeling hopeful today for some reason. Uh, so let's bring in Scott Radley, who's the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, he's here now. Scott, hope you're doing well. You're laughing. You're suspe- I guess you're thinking I'm going to be not hopeful. No, not at all. You just, I, I, no, no, I, I'm not saying that at all, Scott. Oh, I am. I'm not. I, <laughs> because I, Burst my bubble. No, I, I think that what we are getting is, I, I, per, to a degree, I, I think that some people are recognizing that things have gone way too far. Uh, but I also see, especially if you're on social media, which is a bad idea. I mean, I, every single day, Scott, that I go on social media, I say, why it's am garbage. I doing this? Why it am is, I doing this? It is. It's garbage. This? It's, it's like, just garbage. Did you ever watch, did you ever watch Everybody Loves Raymond, the old show? Yep. And, um, Robert's mother-in-law had an old saying when, when we see someone smoking, she goes, why don't you just drink poison? <laughs> and I feel like that every time I go on social media, why don't yeah. I just drink poison? And so when I go on there, I see not that we're getting the pendulum is swinging back. I see that there are many people on the very, 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 very extreme progressive side who are dug in even more than ever. And anything that is offensive in any way must be the end of that person. On the other side, what I'm seeing is not that people are swinging a pendulum back because I think they never were in favor of this, but they were terrified of it. What I think a lot of people now on that side are saying is, go ahead. I don't care. I, I am not worried about you. I don't, you're an extremist. I don't, if you want to cancel me, you go ahead. The people I care about are not going to bother with you. I just think there's an acquiescence now to saying, go ahead and do what you want to do. I'm not changing my life for you. I think this has come forward in the green belt debate. And I've talked to you about this before and I've, I've been hammering it on the show, but I really believe that there, uh, there's some people on the extreme left that think that the green belt debate is more important than the housing crisis. And I had this conversation with Andrea Horvath just moments ago and, and, and 
really, at the end of the day, we need to find solutions here that come from all sides. And, you know, there's certain politicians that are just digging their heels in and saying, we can never touch this. We can never, da, 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 never, 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 never. We've just lived through a pandemic. How can you ever say never about anything? It just seems so silly to me. Mm. And at least, you know, we had the discussion about affordable housing because she said affordable housing and all the key lines and, and phrases. And it's like, what the hell is affordable housing? If you both like one, asking, what's the middle class? Well, again, if you build a 1,000 square foot home with modest furnishings and, and modest everything, but you only build one and there's 500 people that want to get into it, there's no, no such thing as affordable housing. It's the same as if it's a 5,000 square foot home. So this whole thing, like we're only catering to the poor, we're only catering to the lower 10 and 15%. Nobody can afford a house. Nothing is affordable. So it just, it amazes me to no end. And, and you know what? The crap has hit the fan. The writing's on the wall. And, and, and a lot of these people are now having to answer, okay, you're not building on the green belt, but why did you not build anything else? And they're now getting confronted with that. And I think it's about time. I mean, I, another area where I'm seeing some of this is I've been very surprised with the encampment debate. Because for a while there, if you dared to speak up and say, you know, I don't like tents in a park. I don't like tents. You were elitist or you were not caring or you were, uh, you know, you didn't care about the suffering. On the extreme right wing. You didn't care about the suffering of people who were in hard times. And now I, I think a lot of people have stood up finally and said, look, I don't have a lack of compassion for people who are in a tough spot. But I also don't think that that means we let our city become covered in used syringes and human feces and yeah. fights at night. I think we can, I think we can stand up and say, I can be both. I can be compassionate, but oh also. Oh my God, Scott, I'm so happy to hear you say that. That's what the housing minister said today. Can we not do both? And in, in an extremist world, it seems that's impossible. Well, both is not an easy one in an extreme, yeah, right, in an extreme world, but I just, as I say, I just, th- this one in particular, because there have been counselors who were on in the last term who were absolutely chastised for being against the idea of encampments, but it seems as though there's an awful lot of people in the city who may not at that, at that time have spoken up about it, who are now feeling like, you know what? I don't, I don't care if you don't like what I have to say. I don't want an encampment in the park next to me. We need to find solutions. This is not a solution. I, I, I applaud the people who are coming out yep. now and yep. saying, you know what? The, if the, the people, silent majority, if the, the people, silent majority, if the people who I really don't agree with want to shut me down and scream at me, whatever, who cares? Yeah, who cares? Exactly. I'm not, I'm not listening to them anyway. I'm not paying attention to them anyway. So I don't care. And I Scott, I'm not talking about truly wildly offensive things. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about everyday disagreements on things in our life that for a while it was not allowed to even suggest that you might feel that way. I just, I see more and more people saying, I don't care what you say. I don't go ahead. Yep. That's great. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. It always sucks when we hear about a musician we love passing away. And now that Jimmy Buffett has gone off to paradise in the sky or wherever it may be, 
he too can finally find paradise. Maybe it's going to come with a cheeseburger. Maybe it's going to come with a margarita. But either way, I really, really want to know. Do you think he ever found that lost shaker of salt?